Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 123. I want to thank the folks at East Coast Radio, first up Diane and DW in particular, for promoting the podcast with listeners to that station. I'm honored to have cracked the nod and been selected to be part of the ECR podcast platform. Also a big thank you to the listeners who've reviewed this podcast on iTunes and elsewhere and pushed the series into the top 20 or so, at least according to Apple, and they've been Almost 800,000 listens with that slightly self-serving service announcement back to the real world of the third decade in the 19th century. Last episode we heard our Harry Smith was busy ridiculing the Amakosa culture and religion and planning to destroy their chiefs in order to ensure they would be pliable to the British government's needs in the coming years. We'll get back to Colonel Smith in future episodes. Mishreshri's kingdom was taking shape and to his north the kingdom of the Batlokwa who were led by Sekondiela, the son of Mantatisi. While she had been regal, stately and charming, he was tall but was surly and aggressive where she'd been tactful. He was also a capable war leader and Mishweshwe had never managed to defeat him. In fact, he had forced the Basuta leader to hand over Taba to him in 1824. In the continuous war between Mushweshwe and Sikonyela, the greatest treasure was the Caledon River Valley, a land of water, pasturage and defensive buttes, and other landscape strongholds. The Butlokwa ruled the upper valley, the north, and by 1835 Sikonyela had emulated Mushweshwe in forming alliances with the Drostas, the Griquas and other mixed-race groups that were living along the western edge of this land. Like Mishweshwe, he was also very interested in the horses and guns that these men were prepared to trade with the people of the interior. But unlike Mishweshwe, he distrusted the missionaries, while continuing to try to negotiate directly with the British. When the Baralong entered the Caledon River Valley in 1833, they were the Tswana, not the Sutu people, who had been living along the Vaal River, but had been beset by droughts and attacked by the Indibeli, as well as by the Kora, who had made their lives difficult. The Baralong were fully aware of the importance of horses and guns, so they moved closer to the supply and closer to the source of ammunition. Wesleyan missionaries John Edwards and James Archbell, who you've met, convinced them to migrate to the plain below Tabanchu at the headwaters of the Moda River. There they formed the nucleus of a large Tswana settlement under Chief Moroka II, soon to be joined by other Tswana speakers with links to the Korana and the Griqua. Moroka was a Christian convert, who began reaching out to the British, sending requests that the governor assist them in halting the raiding by the Drosta groups and the other bandits. And Morocco's Wesleyans helped him by writing diplomatic letters, observed with some suspicion by Moshreshwe's French missionaries, Abusay and Kassali, distant European wars and world views were brought deep into the heart of Lesotho. So when the Furtrekkers pushed into this territory, it was not like they were entering a land unknown. There was a long history of travel in and out of here to the Cape. The leaders and even the people who had lived across the Orange River were well informed about the colony and the goings-on. Imagine, if you can, this territory. People here mostly dressed in Western clothes and speaking a form of Dutch we now call Afrikaans. They were mainly black or mixed race, but they lived in settler-style cottages and most were converting to Christianity. As I've explained, the trekkers found much in common with these people, and some offered to act as guides into the more treacherous regions beyond. 
That said, the sudden surge of voortrekkers who began showing up in this land after 1835 took most by surprise, and the Griqua and others realized that these Boers would inevitably clash with the powerful Amandebele and the Zulus and others beyond the Waal and the Drakensberg Mountains. The Drosters had been repeatedly defeated by Mzilikatsi, and he stood menacingly in the path of the trekkers pushing north across the Waal River. A confrontation was unavoidable. It had been a remarkable journey for Mzilikatsi from the area at the headwaters of the Black Mfolozi in the northwestern Zululand region up onto the Haarfeld to the Waal River. As he roamed, he killed off all competitors, particularly members of his own family, similar to what Shaka and Dingan had been doing. He ran his kingdom as a Zulu. He also had age-based regiments. He also forced his warriors to fight for him before they could marry. Usually that took around 10 years. And unmarried men, known as the Amajaha, were in these regiments. The older men who were members of the Ibuto had many wives and children, large herds, and took captives from war, who did the chores around the homestead, enslaved. The married Amabuto were stationed in Amakanda, where their cattle would be concentrated. Dotted around the kingdom, but close enough to provide military support for the king when he called. The one difference from the Zulu system is that the Isigodlo had its own stockade in the middle of the parade ground instead of to one side, and one of the king's wives lived in these stockades as Mzilikatsi's representative. She would run the camp, so to speak, on his behalf, sharing powers with an Induna who was the military commander and the civil administrator of the entire district surrounding the Ibuto. Villages would be dotted about. All the headmen of these villages would report to the Induna, who then report with one of Mzilikatsi's wives to the king. It's really important to know all of this, considering what immense struggle was going to begin shortly. Each of these Ibuto settlements was facing outwards, facing possible threats from the outside. These garrisons guarded the villages, but many villages were days away, growing smaller in number as they became more isolated where some of the cattle posts were also based. They were the eyes and the ears of the king, notifying him through the Indunas of unwanted arrivals. They would rely on visitations by the warriors, these Amabuto, who would head off on raiding expeditions beyond Mzilikatsi's territory and pass through these outlying frontier villages as they went. The Indabeli warriors were similar to the Zulu, armed and dressed in almost the same way, donning a penis sheath below their kilts, their bare shoes long at the back, shorter at the front, a covering of tails from different animals, cow tails were tied above their elbows and below their knees. They wore various types of headdress, feathers, or a pom-pom made of a bunch of feathers of ostrich, guinea fowl, and even crow. These were stitched into a net and layered with additional feathers and placed on the head. The officers sported blue crane feathers or white feathers from larger birds on the felt. They had a specific marching dress code versus their ceremonial dress. During the raiding, they'd remove their large capes of cow tails and ostrich features from their shoulders to facilitate the movement. The main defense was a shield similar in size to the Zulu, or the Nduandre, or the Mtetwa. It would be bound onto a large stick that covered from head to below the knees, and like the Zulu, the Ndebele had different colored shields for different Ubuto. They held a bunch of throwing spears and a stabbing spear, as well as a nobkiri. Like the Zulu, a warrior would be rewarded for courage and punished for cowardice. By the early 1830s, these Indibeli were happily ensconced north of the Machalisberg Mountains with its excellent water and pastures. 
and it's warmer than the other areas of the Haarfeld, with its ridges covered in thick vegetation. Despite controlling the territory all the way south of the Vaal, and for hundreds of kilometres around this central point, Mzilikatsi was paranoid about his safety. He had reason to be. Dingaan had caught up with him before, and Mzilikatsi was acutely aware that the Zulu king was still his main threat to the east, albeit more than 400 kilometres away. To the south, the Drostas and the Krikwa and Kora with their guns and their horses worried him a great deal. Anything coming from that direction was dangerous. And coming from the south were the Voortrekkers. By 1832 onwards, the Zulu too began to advance on his eastern border once more. He'd been defeated by Dingaan's main Induna and Lela Kasumpisi at a battle on the Apis Rafir, and Mzilikatsi had shifted further west to the Mariko River around 20 kilometres south of where Zirist is today. Then in 1835 he met Andrew Smith, who'd been sent by Governor Durban to collect intelligence on the inland territories of southern Africa. Smith presented Mzilikatsi with a cloak and a medal as a gift from the British governor, and Mzilikatsi sent Mkumbati, his top councillor, to Cape Town with Smith. He wanted to sign a formal treaty with the British. Mkumbati was wined and dined and shown all manner of grand Cape Town life, and on the 3rd of March, 1836, he signed a treaty with the British on behalf of Mzilikazi. It bound the Ndebele in a friendship with the colony, and importantly, the British recognised his control over the land he had conquered. He also signed a document that stated that he should refrain from war as well as from attacking the people in the south, and that he should defend all Europeans who visited him, including the missionaries. In exchange, the British would offer him gifts of cattle and other valuables. Mzilikazi asked for a missionary to come and live with him. He'd heard how they'd been crucial in bolstering the Basutu and the Griqua. He wanted his own tame men in black as well. Upon hearing about the signing, Colonial Secretary Lord Glenelg announced himself extremely pleased with the arrangement, believing they had managed to secure peace along the Cape's northern border. There was another specific stipulation from Mzilikatsi that he regarded as non-negotiable. He made it clear that he would oppose vehemently any incursion into his land by anyone. Mkumbati's emissary wasn't just hanging around Cape Town pubs and parties just to sign a scrap of paper for his boss. He was collecting intelligence about guns and horses. While Mzilikazi had publicly sneered at firearms, like Shaka in a way, behind the scenes the Ndebele leader was collecting guns like crazy. He had at least 400 muskets by now and ammunition. His armies were also starting to practice riding horses. They had 300. The English and Boer traders had sold him barrels of gunpowder, but he was still collecting these important weapons and material and figuring how to incorporate them into his military system when events conspired against the Indebele leader. His military system was still very much a spear and shield organization when he met the biggest challenge on the African felt, the Fuertrekkers. By 1836, he had secured a great swath of land west of the Mariko, all the way to the Limpopo, extending east to the Drachensberg, then south to the Vaal. To defend it, he had only a few thousand warriors, too few in thinly stretched to be able to control everything in and around about 350 kilometers north to south and about the same distance east to west. His home, the Kohindibeli region, lay along the Mariko River, centered at Moseka near Zirast and Igabeni, 
The Botswana to the west were not his friends, mainly because the Mzilikazi had raided them mercilessly all the way along the Malopo River. He sometimes raided the Shona beyond the Limpopo, but regarded this mighty river as his northern border. To the east, closer to the Zulu, he left the tracts of land unsettled as a kind of buffer zone against Dingon. Smith estimated that Mzilikazi could call on around 2,000 warriors, far fewer than other traders had believed. They suggested it was 50,000. As the voortrekkers were to find out, he could actually call on an army of at least 4,000. The biggest threat remained the Barstas and the Drostas. They had raided him three times and were the closest to his southern reaches. His diplomacy was specifically aimed at preventing others like the Drostas herding and heading into his land from the Cape, and here he completely underestimated the Voortrekkers. They looked like the Drostas, but they were not. They conformed to no treaty either, which is not what Mzilikazi had expected. Leading the most significant of these trek parties was Andres Hendrik Potita, who was a farmer from the Craddock district who departed from his beloved Klein Karoo in December 1835. There were 49 armed men and teenage boys over 16 in these 50 wagons, and he was joined by Charles Osaro Solius, as he became known, who lived near Colesburg. He had 25 adult men in his group, including, as I mentioned, a 10-year-old Paul Kruer. We need to take a much closer look at Portita and Salius. These two men are almost myths in the annals of Africana history, and what they were about to face, no European traveller into the interior of southern Africa had faced before. A full-blown war against a military society like the Indebele. Portita had left the Taka district with his 80-year-old father. They were really moving their entire culture and life away from the English. Saral Solius was imbued with an extremely fervent religious attitude. When he was ten years old, he said he'd experienced a personal encounter with God which focused his mind, and he began converting all his friends and his children to his form of Christianity. Before then, his family were Trekboers who were religious, but Solius took his proselytizing to a new level. It was key people like Solius who cemented the biblical aspect of the great trek into the culture of the movement. Clean-shaven, he was short and stout, usually dressed in light trousers and a short black jacket. He had long sideburns and fair hair that he combed forward. A man of God, he walked everywhere with his Bible in his hand. Everyone who met him said he was pious and gentle and would preach for hours to anyone who would listen, praying that the Lord would lead the Fuertrekkers to a better land. His family origin story is that they were French Huguenots. They had experienced the worst forms of religious persecution by the French Catholics, and his family had fled to the Cape with the first group in the late 17th century, the 1690s, and settled near Graf Reinet eventually. By 1835, Silius was living in the Huntam district of Colesburg, the furthest reaches of the Cape, almost beyond the control of the British. He had been part of an earlier expedition that travelled to the area north of the Fetrafir between the false and sand rivers, which were empty of people. He had returned home and set up a petition, eventually signed by 72 trekkers, asking the governor for permission to take this land, but the governor had refused. Then the British slave compensation payment he had supposed to receive was slashed. If you've listened to the series, you would have heard how the British reduced payments and the Dutch farmers were outraged. Instead of receiving 2,888 rix dollars for his slaves when they were freed, Silius was paid 500 rix dollars in goods, not even in cash. 
So he was one of the leaders pushed away from the Cape, seeking independence and joining Porchita. This group had over 70 wagons. More than 200 people were now rolling across the felt, along with thousands of head of livestock, a rather cumbersome caravan. The sheep and the cattle chewed the grass and felt down to the roots, leaving a trail that looked like a swarm of locusts had descended, devouring everything in its way. Salir's religious zeal was infectious. These voortrekkers had to believe in something grander than the idea of merely heading out for their own personal gain. He told them they were enlisting in a crusade of righteousness. He had a huge impact on the others, all devout Christians. Back home in the Cape, their predicants or their ministers had actually tried to dissuade them from leaving, warning that they'd be moving further and further away from civilization. The isolation could cause them to lose their God-fearing ways. The opposite was going to take place. The isolation was reinforcing their difference with the indigenous people they met. It became their proof of uniqueness, their salvation in their minds. They could never mix with the locals because it would threaten their very core and threaten their special relationship with God. Salius said they had been chosen like the Israelites, oppressed by the English. Porchita and Salius and the Futrekas were creating an origin story, and like all origin stories, they are viscerally felt by believers. The chapters of the Bible preferred by Salius were the Old Testament chapters. As theologian C.S. Mayer notes, the Bible is a collection of violent books, and the Old Testament is particularly violent. I mean, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son, and Abraham sets out to do just that, as if a command is what you'd expect from a deity. Later, God kills the firstborn of the Egyptians, then the Pharaoh and his army. The slaves of the Boers heard the stories and dreamed of their own freedom. These events to both peoples, living alongside each other, slaves and the footrekkers, would produce a grand narrative called the Exodus. And yet, the Exodus has a dark side, where the people of Cain, the Canaanites, are slaughtered by the same God who delivers the Israelites from Egypt. So once you ask, what has this to do with our story? Well, pretty much everything. From 1836 to this day, the idea is at the heart of politics in South Africa. The Voortrekkers believed in the Old Testament, but also the New, where the same God sacrifices His own Son, who would eventually return after much bloodletting to save everyone. The Bible is full of spilled blood, just like our history. The Old Testament was going to provide the Voortrekkers with a kind of guide about how to deal with the new lands they'd conquer, and how to deal with the people on this land. Zilius and other Voortrekkers would speak of their movement out of Egypt a.k.a. the Cape, as a crusade, the same as the Spanish conquering South America and the Trekkers perceiving themselves as Israelites conquering the heathen Canaanites, i.e. black Southern Africans. Unfortunately for everyone, part of this message was so alluring, it was steeped in something known as the ban, a highly problematic if not repulsive concept. These are the banned texts found in Deuteronomy 7 and 20, but also Joshua 10 and Joshua 11, where God orders the Israelites to practice a ban to avoid relationships with the heathens. Then God commands the Israelites to remove all the indigenous peoples, the Canaanites, from the land, and finally orders the Israelites to kill the Canaanites. Or God ends up doing this himself, as in Joshua 10 and 11. 
This belies a core system that all religious movements encapsulate called certitude. The terrible thing is certitude leads to violence, and all cultures and religions have some form of certitude. The cosmos and its mysteries are made plain by certitude. There's always been a link between violence and identity in Southern Africa. It is the root of all our problems, some would say. Certitude is a dangerous passion. Violence and identity politics are forged together. They are the evil twins of human consciousness, a virulent poison, because it's so easy to concoct a magical social sleight of hand that motivates people to believe there's an us and a them. And thus, the Old Testament carrying footrekkers crossed the mighty rivers just as the Israelites. They set foot on the promised land just as the Israelites. They were saved from Pharaoh, otherwise known as King George of England, but only if they continued to believe in the ban, the concept of the chosen people. They must remain pure, separate from those around them, starting with the English, but including the blacks. Simultaneously and embedded equally deeply in the consciousness of the Ndebele and its king Mzilikazi was their own form of magic and ritual, belief system and certitude, and their own link between violence and identity. These two certitudes were on a collision course, and the intersection was north of the Val River, near modern-day Parais. After crossing the Orange River, both Portkita and Silius groups were asked to vote for an overall leader who was responsible for ensuring discipline and order, a commandant. Portkita won the vote, wagons were reassembled, goods repacked after the arduous crossing of the flooding orange, and the procession set off for Tabanchu, where Moshweshwe awaited. The peak could be seen for a great distance. The tip was white, but it wasn't snow. It was vulture guano, tons of the stuff, along with vast quantities of dusty droppings, which had accumulated over hundreds of years and turned white over time. The Fortrekkers remained at Tabanchu for a few weeks, and while there serviced their wagons, and they hunted, making bultong in preparation for the next phase of their trek into the hinterland. To the east, the Zulu under Dingaan were threatening Mzilikazi's power, and he had drawn back the homesteads from the area just across the Val River, from where Standerton through to Parais are today. He kept his men posted there with express orders to destroy any invaders, which was very bad news for the Futrekas. It's not like they didn't know about all of this. Sekonyela of the Batlokwa and Morocco of the Baralong warned them not to cross the Val from the east, that they should enter Mzilikazi's territory only from the west, from Kuruman. They weren't utterly careless. They decided to form themselves into a single powerful military organization, one of the reasons why the vote to place Porhita in charge was so crucial. They were going to draw on their long experience of commandos in the Cape and set up their structures along the same lines. The 65 men who were able to bear arms in the two parties nominated Portita as their commander. It was a kind of inevitability because Portita's party had the most men, but it was the right choice. The stern-faced Andres Portita was born in the Cape in 1792. He had fought in the 4th and 5th Cape Frontier Wars against Dacosa. He was charismatic, tough, tall, lanky, extremely strong, like Biltong himself, and a natural leader. He had long, dark hair. His beard was always closely cropped, scrabbly almost, upper lip clean-shaven. He was a doper, conservative, his blue eyes set in a deeply lined face, a face that had spent most of its time outdoors surviving. 
Porquito was itching to get moving, and he had an ally of the Taong chief, Makwana, who lived north of the Basut. Willem Pretorius, another trekker, had headed off to Makwana's home and made an alliance with him in May 1836, and Pochita and his trek party set off for this region around the Santa Fier, where he halted again. But Pochita was eyeing the much better land across the Val River. The land, though, was not for sale. It belonged to Mzilikazi, who himself had seized it from the Baralong, the Huruchi, the Bafokeng, the Bakwena. The people were mixed farmers. They herded sheep and cattle and goats, and cultivated sorghum and millet and beans, as well as peas. Some of these walled enclosures have revealed another interesting fact. These people spent a lot of time making jewellery and smelting iron. Bruderström, west of Pretoria, is where we have the earliest example of the smelting taking place way back in 550 AD. The Bafo King had been thrown off this land by the Indibeli, who now faced their own external threat, the Voortrekkers. Portgieter, like Lang Hans Janssen van der Rensburg and Louis Trichard, was eyeing a viable route to Delegoa Bay, where he planned to ally himself and his people with the Portuguese. Coffee, tea, sugar and other groceries, as well as weapons and gunpowder and lead, could be bought from that port. By now, van der Rensburg was dead, although neither Trichard nor Portgieter knew that. Portgieter was planning to meet up with van der Rensburg, and on the 24th of May, 1836, he set out from the Santa Fier encampment with a scouting party known to the Boers as a Trek, eleven men well-armed and prepared for the dangerous trip. He gathered his folk before him and explained what was at stake, warning those who remained behind not to venture north across the Vaal River, because this would draw the attention of the Indebele and they would be attacked. Portgieter's party included his two IC, Sardel Silius, and they set off in two wagons. Along the way, Portgieter had other plans, he was going to look for the best spots along the Vaal River where the Voortrekkers could build permanent settlements. He hoped to meet Trichard and then join van der Rensburg. By June, Portgieter had met up with Trichard and the Sertpansberg, but he searched in vain for van der Rensburg, heading northeast across the Limpopo River as he went. His men moved quickly, and as a frontiersman he was one of the best and the smartest. He figured out within a month that there was no easy route to Delegoa Bay, and was deterred by the vast distances and the deadly tsetse fly that killed people and livestock. Little did Portita and Silius know that just a few days after they had left on their mission to Delagoa Bay, some of the trekkers near the Santrafid had ignored his warnings and crossed the Val River to its northern bank. And Mzalikazi was alerted to this danger. He acted immediately. What happened is for episode 124. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget, head off to the website desmalatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter at deslatham. Until next, Tootsies.